Pound the Rock is brought to you by The Score Bet. That's right, we brought you the best sports media app, and now we're bringing you the best sports book. The Scorebet offers a safe and secure mobile sportsbook experience with both pregame and in-play markets. But best of all, it's integrated into the score and our content to give you the easiest and most seamless sports betting experience. So take advantage of exciting promotions and odds boosts all season long. Download now on iOS and Android. Available in Colorado, Indiana, Iowa, and New Jersey. Must be 21+. plus. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, contact 1-800-522-4700 in Colorado, 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, and 1-800-GAMBLER in New Jersey. Visit thescore.bet for more details. Happy Friday, everybody. Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I am Joe Wolfond, and of course, I am joined by my co-host, Joseph Cacharo. Talk to me, Cash. I genuinely think Fridays are happier because of our now weekly Friday Pound the Rock episodes. And I may, hope maybe, so. maybe I'm Are biased. you talking about like for us or, or for the people who are listening? Uh, for the people. For us, it's work. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It's, 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 it's not it's, moving the needle for you. Huh? It's, it's happy. It's it's happier for us too. But uh, yeah, I hope it results in happier Fridays for the people, for our loyal listeners. We're doing what we can. Um, we got a lot to get to today, as we do every time we record one of these. <laughs> the NBA is a bustle, as always. I mean, for, first and foremost, I guess, and, and we can just rip through this pretty quickly. But I do think it bears mentioning that. COVID has once again descended on the NBA and is wreaking havoc. I mean, half of the Charlotte Hornets seemingly are in health and safety protocols right now, including LaMelo, Terry Rozier, et cetera. Um, Half of the Bulls are in health and safety. Rick Carlisle registered a positive test in the self-isolating. Masai Ujiri has COVID. Like, and and, and John John Morant as well. Yeah, like, and in a lot of these cases, I think, in Jaw's case and in Masai's case, it was revealed publicly that they are fully vaxxed with booster shots and still got breakthrough infections. So just a reminder, I guess, that like this thing is still far from over. And while vaccines and booster shots do offer significant protection against infection, against severe illness, especially, uh, I, I don't think that should be a reason to completely let our guards down. And I think the NBA is coming face to face with that right now. I, I do think, you know, obviously the the positive thing is that for the most part, it seems like the people who are getting breakthrough infections in, in the NBA and otherwise are getting mild symptoms or they're asymptomatic. But I, I'm pretty sure Joel Embiid was fully vaxxed and he talked about having a harrowing experience with COVID where I think he said like there were moments when he felt like he wasn't going to make it, mm-hmm. which is obviously pretty scary. So just, you know, stay safe, everybody stay vigilant and uh, let's try and get through this winter. But that's a, a, an unfortunate thing that's going on in the NBA. And we can move on from there and just get down to sort of brass tacks here. My renounced Indiana Pacers fandom continues <laughs> to show its benefits because this team is once again in disarray and now publicly in disarray thanks to i don't know if it's is it fair to call it a bombshell report i mean it's 
as far as you know front office leaks go i feel like this one was relatively tame but a report in the athletic from shams charania and bob kravitz that the pacers are quote moving toward a significant rebuild and fielding trade calls on karis levert and one of or being prepared i suppose to trade karis levert and one of demontis Sabonis and miles turner so I guess, you know, my feeling is this doesn't actually feel to me like a full-scale rebuild in the making. Well, the Pacers never do commit to a full-scale rebuild. Right, which, and another interesting interesting tidbit in that piece was that Kevin Pritchard reportedly had wanted to back in 2017 when Paul George demanded out and was rebuffed by ownership and that this was basically a, a concession from ownership you know, that they were actually prepared to go ahead and do this. But Malcolm Brogdon signed an in-season extension, so he's ineligible to be traded until the offseason. They're still apparently only looking to trade one of Sabonis and Turner. And Karis LeVert has frankly been not very good this season. Yeah. So I'm kind of looking at this and thinking, I, especially with Rick Carlisle on the sidelines, right, who's not the kind of coach you think of as, a caretaker coach who's going to foster and nurture or rebuild from the ground up. And he's in the first year of a pretty lucrative four-year contract. This seems a lot more like a retool or a sort of soft reset to me than a full-scale rebuild. But I, I did think it was interesting just because not that we haven't heard lots of trade rumors with those two centers in the past, with the Pacers in general in the past, but I feel like this is the first time that the R word has been invoked and um, I'm curious to see where this goes. And also, you know, I guess this was a, a front office leak from the Pacers side of things. I, I don't know why, like, like why leak this? You know, like, I don't think it helps their leverage necessarily if they're looking to trade these guys and, the, you know, everyone is still on the team and they're ostensibly trying to turn their season around. I mean, they dominated the Knicks the other night and like played one of their best games of the season. So I guess it hasn't impacted them yet, but obviously something like this gets out and it has the potential to sow division or just discomfort and distrust. And that could put that much more pressure on the Pacers to make a move and kind of kill their leverage a little bit. So I don't know. What, What do you feel about that report, about where the Pacers are at right now, about where you see all this going? Well, for one... I'll say this. The Pacers have always done... Like, I don't want to troll them for the whole they've never done a full rebuild because to their credit as a franchise, they have continued to retool on the fly over and over and over again and get competitive again without ever having to tear it down and rebuild. So I'm not going to troll them or clown them for never committing to a rebuild. But I will say they never have. Like, Herb Simon, the owner, has notoriously been like, no, we are putting the best product, the most competitive team on the court. We're not going to do a full-scale rebuild, tear it down. But I think it's funny that I guess maybe because they've never actually done it to them now, just trading one of Sabonis or Turner and Karis LeVert, who's not really going to be like, isn't playing well anyway, is considered, okay, we're committed to a rebuild now. It's like, no, man, you're committed to the same thing you've been committed to. And hey, that's fine. It's worked for you in the past. My thing is, I don't know if it's going to work for you this time. Uh, I don't want to be the guy who's just like, oh, they're, they're they're both 25. They can't be part of the next good Pacers team. But I will say this, like you trade one of them, right? Because you think we need to retool, rebuild, whatever you want to call it. 
realistically, like you look at the state of the Eastern Conference right now, you look at the fact that it's better than it's been, I've said before, probably in like a quarter century. Literally, like I think the East is better and deeper right now than it's been since Jordan's heyday. And you also look at the teams that are running it, whether it's, okay, like I know Brooklyn is an older team, they've got their issues, but like they shouldn't just be gone by next year. Um, the Bulls, I guess we'll see what happens with the Levine's contract, but that looks like a team that is building something that shouldn't just be a one-year wonder. Um, the Cavs, who we're going to talk about today, look like a team coming and on the rise. There are others, obviously. Uh, the Bucks, like Giannis Antetokounmpo is locked in long-term. That team's going to be a contender for the foreseeable future. The Sixers will see, whatever. But like the point is, this is a different Eastern Conference than the one that the Pacers have retooled and just like come back in in the past. And so it's like you trade one of Sabonis Turner and keep one of them. Who They're both already 25. Even if it only takes you a couple years to get back to somewhat competitive with younger players, but now one of those guys that you kept is like 27. And also those guys are under contract. I think one of uh, Sabonis maybe for an extra two years after this one, Turner for one more year after this one. So that's the thing too, like... I understand that just looking at their age, things are 25, they're both good. They could be part of the next good Pacers team. But I don't think it makes sense when you look at their both of their contracts, um, you know, how long they're under team control, the state of the East, to think that like if you're going to commit to some sort of retooling, rebuilding, whatever, that either one of them should be here, you know, unfortunately. I just don't think that's going to work. So I think... I think if they're going to do this, then they need to do it in a full-scale style. Not because, oh, that's what you do, but just because like I, I don't really see what their other options are. Unless, now, unless they just want to do the usual Pacers thing of like, maybe they'd be, if they're content to be like fighting for a play-in for a few here, then then okay, you keep one of them. But if they're they're saying, or reportedly saying, they're committed to a rebuild, well, fighting for a play-in year after year isn't a true rebuild. And if they want to do a true rebuild based on the the way the time is going to work out, I think they got to trade both of Sabonis and Turner. Who, by the way, I will say both individually have played pretty well this season. Sabonis has been great. Turner's been individually shooting. and together, and, and so that's what I'm saying. Individually, been playing great. Sabonis has been great. Turner's shooting the lights out uh, and doing his thing defensively. And as you have noted, I, I can't remember if it was in your piece or on Twitter. I think when they're on the court together, the Pacers actually have a positive net rating this season. So like plus 11. Yeah. Not just positive, like barnstorming. So I get it. And, and again, you can even look at the East right now. Pacers are 11 and 16. They're 13th, but they're also only two and a half games back of the plan again for a franchise that traditionally has just wanted to compete and not even necessarily at the highest level. They, if they're just competitive and they're playing for something, traditionally that franchise has been happy with that and has preferred that over playing for lottery balls. So there are a lot of reasons you can look at this and be like, no, nah, if, if the Pacers are the Pacers, they'll kind of maintain some sort of status quo, trade one of them, and this is who they'll be. I don't think they should do that. I will be surprised if they trade both. Doesn't sound like they're going to, but I would do both. And the one other thing I wanted to point out, because we were talking about you know how good Turner and his opponents have actually been, for... Any of our listener for Wolfon and any of our listeners who have been longtime listeners, this isn't anything new. You're probably gonna be rolling your eyes because I mention it multiple times every year. But I do this fun little passion project every year for our new listeners who want to hear it, where I try between watching, you know, as many games as I can, obviously, like if I can't watch a game, obviously, you know, I'm hitting the condensed games on League Pass, which I understand you're getting mostly only like offensive highlights. You're not seeing a lot of defense in those, but it's better than nothing. So between watching as many games as possible, the condensed versions, 
Um, I try to get an eye on every game that's played in the NBA all season and look at every single box score at the end of the night for the entire season. And I try to come up with for every single game played, who was the best player on the court? Again, literally just a passion project that I like kind of putting together and seeing which players are consistently the best players on the court because there's a difference between being a good player, great player, whatever, and actually being the best player on an NBA court between two teams on a given night. So I did want to point out that so far this season, there are six guys who, according to that tally of mine, have been the best player on an NBA court in a game at least 10 times. Those six players, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Nikola Jokic, Steph Curry, Kevin Durant, Luka Doncic, and Demontis Sabonis. He's been good, man. He's been great despite the, the despite the Pacers' best efforts to marginalize him <laughs> yeah. in their offense. Yeah, as you mentioned um, in the piece you wrote as well, they, they, they went from... Yeah. Well, they've gone through a lot of different styles, but um, they went from really prioritizing him offensively to now and getting him going in a lot of different ways to now, I don't want to say taking the ball out of his hands, but somewhat taking the ball out of his hands. No, that is 100% what they're doing. I mean, not totally. He's still leading the team in touches, but it's, you know, significantly less than he was getting last season and and seasons before. And I'm, you know, I, I, I do want to sort of push back a little bit on this idea that I understand the Pacers haven't committed to a full-scale teardown, but this idea that it's been like totally a status quo, that they never change anything, that they have this super stale team with a stale core, I just that doesn't really ring true to me because I mean they've they've reshaped the roster around Turner and Sabonis multiple times. Like those are the only two guys on the roster or the coaching staff that are still there from the 2018-19 team, which really was not very long ago, right? Can I, can um, I point out one thing as well? Because I, sure. I I remembered them being good, obviously, but I forgot it until you mentioned it in the piece. They started that 2018-19 season 32-15 and 15 before Oladipo yeah, got yeah. hurt. That's a 56-win pace more than halfway through the season until Oladipo messed his quad kneecap up there. I, I just wanted to point that out because... Again, I remember them being good, obviously. The year before, they took the Cavs to Game 7 in the first round. I remember them starting the next year good, but I had forgot just how good they were to start that next season. They were playing at a 56-win pace. Yeah, and I always mention it. like It's a a kind of under-discussed element of the Pacers' stagnation is just how much of a factor injuries have played into it. Obviously, the Oladipo one was the biggest because he was legitimately you know an all nba player in 2017-18 wasn't quite that good in 2018-19 but still made the all-star team and was still the offensive engine you know on top of being like a roving off-ball terror at the defensive end uh he was the heartbeat of their team and he was just never remotely the same after that uh you know and then you have sabonis missing the 2020 bubble and then in that 2020 bubble, like TJ Warren just ascends to the astral plane, becomes a completely different player, and then gets injured four games into the following season and literally hasn't played since because of, you know, recurring foot injuries, foot surgery, complications in his rehab from that foot surgery, and still hasn't played. And he's a, a free agent at the end of this season, could in theory be a, a really nice trade chip for them, but like, what kind of value does he have have right now when he hasn't played and nobody knows really where his health is at or what he's going to look like when he comes back? That that has just it's con- consistently interrupted their progress. It's just, just like their inability to stay healthy, uh, and that's been a, a big part of this. And I'm, I mean, 
look, I, I, I can definitely see the sense in what you're saying of why, okay, like this, regardless, if it's a retool, a reset, whatever it is, they're not going to be meaningfully competitive in this Eastern Conference anytime soon. So why not just kick the can way down the road and refocus your attention on, you know, maybe five years from now? But I, I just don't know if, Even three. if they're willing. Even three I, I just don't know if they're willing to go there. I mean, my question for you is like, okay, if you're saying Sabonis and Turner, they're 25, it makes no sense to keep them around. Are you saying the same about Chris Duarte, who's 24? Well, yeah, well, he's an old rookie. I know. Like, no, I think <laughs> the, like, here's, here's the the difference is that the package you'd get back for one of for Sabonis and Turner specifically Sabonis is obviously a lot more significant than it. you know as good as Chris Duarte is. I don't know. Is don't, it though? Like considering that he's on a a rookie scale deal, like that is if you're talking bang for your buck no, for the I, next I, listen, four years. Love, love Duarte, love Duarte, yeah. but come on, in terms of what teams are giving up for guys. Mm-hmm. compare Duarte to Turner and Sabonis, that's a significant difference. And and the bigger contracts also mean there's more coming back to Like, I, I, I really don't know. I, I think, look, there, there are some positive indicators for this team that su- suggest that if it was a retool, you know, maybe not getting up to the uh, upper echelon of the East, but they could turn things around pretty quickly, you know, where maybe Warren comes back and is healthy. And it, it was mentioned in that piece that he reportedly wants to stick around after this season. Yeah. You know, you get him back, uh, you get some development from Duarte, the other young players on the team, Isaiah Jackson, you know, whoever they get in these trades and maybe a couple lottery picks in 2022, that could be a kind of accelerated rebuild that bears fruit relatively quickly. But again, though, it it comes down to like, what kind of fruit are they trying? Are they trying to bear? Right? Like, well, that's the thing. And I don't know. I mean, it's like they could compete for a top six seed in theory, in the, in the next few years, if that's what they want to do. Or they can be really, really bad for the next two or three years and then try to do the ground-up rebuild thing, which apparently they don't want to do, yeah. even in that report. like As that R word was invoked, it was also said they don't want to do a process-style rebuild. They don't want to tank. Um, so that's what makes me skeptical that we're going to see anything uh, right. too, too dramatic. Um, and, and I think, you know, to me, the most interesting part of this by far is just that it, it is going to come down to them choosing between Sabonis and Turner, which we've sort of been waiting for them to do for a while. It's funny that they're doing it now when those two players are like actually just going like gangbusters when they're on the floor together, actually rebounding the ball for the first time. Like they, they've always been poor at rebounding, even with two bigs on the floor. And now when those two guys are on the floor together, they have like a 54% rebound rate, which is fantastic sub 100 defensive rating and like i said a plus 11 net rating like it is working and the fascinating thing to me has always been like okay so you're you're trying to find a fit for those guys elsewhere what what kind of players are you looking to put around those guys or put next to them in the front court because the player you want next to demontis sabonis in the front court looks a whole lot like miles turner and the player you want next to miles turner in the front court looks a whole lot like demontis sabonis and it's, you know, you, you're kind of, uh, I think Turner, the decision to me is going to come down to whichever of those guys can get them a better return. Right. Like and, that's how they make that decision. And I decision. think that's like, Sabonis. I, I think it's Sabonis. Yeah. I mean, it should oh, okay. be. Okay. Sabonis is the better, better player. Yes. Yeah. But that, but this is where it gets complicated because yes, uh, Sabonis is better. 
to me, Turner is going to be a lot easier for most competitive teams to fit in, absorb and to yeah. fit into yeah. their existing architecture. Okay. Now here, but here's, here's what I want to mention though, because I'm assuming you saw Miles Turner's quote, what, yesterday, two days ago about yeah, I did. how the Pacers have kind of limited him to what, I think, did he say he's a glorified role player? Or something, I, something I have like, the quote, I have okay. the quote right here in front of me. Okay. It's, um, it's clear that I'm not valued as anything more than a glorified role player here. And I want something more, more opportunity. I'm trying really hard to make the role that I'm given here work and find a way to maximize it. I've been trying the past two, three seasons, but it's clear to me that just numbers wise, I'm not valued as more than a rotational role player. And I hold myself in a higher regard than that. Okay. So you know, I don't disagree with what he's saying, but what I will say is that Miles Wait, Turner, you don't disagree that, that he is more than that, or you no, don't disagree that that's, that's how they view him? Yes, I don't disagree that that's how they view him. And I, and yeah. I understand Miles Turner, NBA player, a good NBA player, was, you know, at one time, a lot of people thought he could be better than this and, and something closer to a star. I understand everyone's got an ego. Like, I get all that. However, Miles Turner, if you want to play on a really competitive team, if you want to contend for a title, any team that is contending for an NBA championship you're going to be a glorified role player. Now, not a role player like the seventh man or someone playing 15 minutes again, but you're going to be a, a glorified role player. You're going to be a really good role player. And to your point, Wolfon, I agree that, yes, while Sabonis is the better player, Turner is easier to fit in on a contender, on a team in general, and because he can impact the game in ways without needing the ball in his hands or without you needing to do things from in ways Sabonis can't because Sabonis, you want to put the ball in his hands more given his skill set. But... The thing is, is Miles Turner going to be happy on one of those teams that he easily fits into? Like if he's saying that he wants more individual opportunity and right now he's a glorified role player in the numbers and yada, 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 then it's like, well, uh, find me a team where you're going to compete Miles Turner and also be something more than a glorified role player. There is not one, not in the NBA anyway. So I'm just kind of confused like, okay, yeah, Turner fits better other places, but like they send him there and is he just going to be as unhappy or will then it be fine because winning cures all? Right. And like, you know, does that affect his his trade market at all? Right. If another team sees that and it's like, oh, we'd love to get Miles Turner, but not if he's going to sulk exactly. about his role because we don't have a bigger offensive role for him than the one that he has with the Pacers right now. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's interesting. And like, I, I just... It's not like he hasn't had opportunities, right? Like that, I mentioned Sabonis being out of the bubble in 2020. And, you know, there's two sides to that. One of them is, guess what? TJ Warren broke out playing the four next to Miles Turner in the bubble. And that says to me a little bit, at least, if what you want in, like, let's say you're Indiana and you're deciding which one of them you want to keep, right? If you want there to be sort of oxygen and space for another young player to ascend and spread his wings and grow into maybe your next franchise player. Turner can kind of facilitate that. But as for like Turner himself, I mean, they got swept by Miami in the playoffs. And part of it was, you know, the heat were just switching everything and they didn't have any fear whatsoever about what Miles Turner was going to do to them on the back end of those switches. And like, I don't think that's really changed very much. Like he, he had his opportunity to showcase what he could do with more responsibility and a larger offensive role. And I think, I don't want to say he failed. I I think he he did some good things in the bubble and in that series, but like broadly speaking, I don't think he necessarily made a case for himself to be like an offensive hub or anything like that. But I also think, you know, if Sabonis can be a tough fit in a lot of places for a lot of different reasons as like a, 
a non-shooting, non-rim protecting big who you you have to kind of design your offense around him. Like you can't really like if you want to maximize him, if you're going to go out and trade for him, like put the stuff on the table that is going to be you know required to get him. I don't think you can do what the Pacers have been doing this season and shunt him off to the side. Like he sort of necessarily has to be in the middle of everything. And if you are a team with designs on competing, like chances are you probably already have a lot of mouths to feed offensively. And that could be tough. He's a great passer, which means, you know, and he's a great screener, which means that he can help make things easier for people on offense. But uh, it, it's maybe a little trickier to scheme around him defensively and then to figure out how to fit all the pieces around him on offense. So I think that's that's going to be the most interesting part of this uh, to see which direction they go there. And I will say, just because it doesn't happen this season doesn't mean that like that, that full-scale rebuild that you mentioned can't happen in the offseason when Brogdon's eligible yeah. to be traded. And I think... You know, we talked last week about some of the challenges that might come with trying to trade a player like Damian Lillard because of his contract, because of what it would mean for Portland to trade him and what would be required of a team, the kind of assets they'd have to put on the table. I mean, all these guys in Indiana are on like very reasonable mid-sized deals. They're young, you know, Turner Sabonis, 25, what's Brogdon, like 28 now? Yeah. Um, you know, Warren is 27 if they decided they wanted to try and trade him. Like these guys are young and on tradable contracts. And I think if you are looking to sort of start from scratch and just accumulate as many assets as you can, like they're kind of in a good position to do that. Young players, mid-sized contracts with term on their deals. That's sort of where you want to start, I yeah. think, if yep. if you're looking to do it. So yeah. And again, just, Turner, just one year left on his contract at eighteen million. So like teams, teams will be there for him. You know, like it's not like someone's taking on some massive risk by taking on Miles Turner at all. Yeah. So I mean, it'll look. I think the the Pacers have a really bad record. They're thirteenth in the East, like you mentioned. But I think they're have like the sixth best net rating in the East. Like yeah, they just have a positive point in, differential. They've been killed in clutch time. Uh, and and Caitlin Cooper. Uh, who writes about the Pacers better than anybody. Uh, she wrote about how, you know, it doesn't all boil down to luck, their crunch time struggles. Like those are sort of endemic uh, and indicative of some broader team-wide issues. But I do think they are a better team than what they've showed so far. And especially if they can get Warren back, it, it's not out of the question that they can like kind of turn their season around from here. And maybe the trade chatter just sort of falls by the wayside if they're not getting the kind of offers that they hope to get. Yeah, there are underlying indications that would seem to suggest this team is a lot closer to being the middling team Herb Simon wants them to be. They don't. They don't need to rebuild to get there. They're there. The record this, just doesn't the, show the, it. the pithy the pithy summary of uh, <laughs> of my recap. Yeah. Um, okay. Can we can we leave that there? Yes, leave and, that there. Uh, and, and, Stay and, in the central division. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, apparently it's Central Division Week here on Pound the Rock. We talked all about the Bulls last week, and this week we got the Pacers and, you know, Central Tuesday, Division Tuesday, Tuesday, not last week. Sorry, Tuesday, We do man. two of these now, Wolfon. Yeah, that's wild. So moving from one Central Division team that's starting two bigs together to another uh, that's doing the same thing, but where the vibes are decidedly different, this Cavs team is very legit. In my mind, like, you know, they have a solid record, but an even 
more robust net rating that suggests they should be even better than they are uh, in the win column. Uh, they're number three in the league in defense. They've done all that against a very tough schedule. They are number one in opponent field goal percentage at the rim, and that more than passes the eye test if you watch them play. Yeah. And obviously, you know, Allen and Mobley are, are the guys who are making that happen. Um, and it's I'm just really impressed with them, man. Like they lost Colin Sexton for the season. And look, he's like their their fourth most important player, but still, like, especially offensively, losing him was no small thing. And yet they've just continued to chug along. And it's basically because their top three uh, of Darius Garland, Jared Allen, and Evan Mobley have been outstanding. Like, I don't know if you watched their game against the Bulls the other night. I did, yep. The game that Evan Mobley had... I'm just like I'm. He's still, ridiculous. Like He's special. Yeah, it's it's crazy, man. And like offensively, you know, he was eating in the post, hitting all manner of push shots, and like there, there was one point at which he ran a four-five pick and roll with Jared Allen, and hit like a silky mid-range pull-up jumper, and he was scoring on the roll. Like the variety yeah. of ways in he, which he was scoring, was, he can do really all that impressive. while having legitimate defensive player of the year upside. And by upside, I mean like within one year he could Next be year. A def- yeah like th- this guy's special man yeah and- yeah I mean his his defense in that game like I, I it's ridiculous like his <laughs> understanding of positioning and space is I think be, like I, I was too young and just like wasn't really into basketball at the time that Tim Duncan was a rookie so I can't speak to Tim Duncan's rookie season I know he made all defense that year so. I'm not making that comparison. I'm just saying from what I have watched in my basketball viewing life, he's the best defensive big man I've ever seen as a rookie. Yeah, I um, agree. And in that game, like watch him play drop coverage and watch how smartly he positions his feet. He's usually operating with like a closed stance where he is sort of close enough and he has the positioning and the footwork to keep that ball handler in check and to be able to stunt and jump out and contest a shot from the ball handler when, or if he needs to, but that's also allowing him to make a really quick recovery to the role man. And I think that bulls game in particular, it was like a really smart understanding of his opponent because Zach, Zach Levine, like his biggest limitation, I think as a playmaker is when he's running pick and roll, he wants to get off the ball really early. He doesn't take that extra probing dribble and, Mobley is like playing him exactly that way, like anticipating that pocket pass coming early and snuffed out everything in the pick and roll. They got nothing against him in drop coverage, nothing. And then when he's a helper, like he's just swallowing everything up at the rim. It was, um, you know, you mentioned this early in the season and I kind of turned my nose up at it a little bit when you were like, I I think he's going to have like a legitimate all defensive case, man, it's, I think he does. Like he he's been that good defensively. It's uh it's incredible. Yeah, I you, think you, like Zach Levine's going to be having nightmares about Evan Mobley's yeah. arms. Mobley has play. a legitimate <laughs> Mobley has a legitimate chance to be the first rookie since Tim Duncan to make all defensive team. And like the thing that's so special about him is that he he is already an elite rim protector and rim deterrent. And has this mastery in drop coverage, as you mentioned, has an IQ, like a defensive IQ and kind of feel for the game that you can't really teach. And 
yet, obviously, even at his size and with all that going for him, has he shown already in the first quarter of his rookie season, very capable and comfortable switching onto smaller players if necessary on the perimeter, moving his feet with those guys. Like there is not a lot this guy can't do at his position defensively. And he's a rookie and the offense looks pretty good too. And speaking of offense, I did want to shout out like Jared Allen has shown a lot more all around offensive pop this year too. And look, I'm not, you know, Jared Allen is never going to be like uh, an offensive star, but he's a lot better offensively right now as like an all around player than I think a lot of people get, gave him credit for because he hadn't shown that yet. Like the guy's averaging, I think, 17 or 17 a game. He's right now the second leading scorer on this team, I believe. I think he's the second leading scorer on a team that is on pace for 44, 45 wins. Again, we're not, you know, we're not talking superstar here, but we are talking about a guy that, quite frankly, if you would have told me Jared Allen would ever be the second leading scorer on a team that could win 45 games, I would have said, you're nuts. Like him as a player, but that's not who he is. Apparently it is. And he's still really young too. This is not like some late career, late blooming thing where you're like, ah, I don't know about it. Like he's still young enough that this could be part of who he is going forward. The Cavs have some really, really fun things to think about in their future. And then even Garden, look, what happened with Sexton, obviously it's unfortunate he's done for the year. Don't want to make it like a battle thing, but the, the whole Sexton, Garland, Sexland, but like, do we have to pick one thing has been something, you know, people have talked about, written about, debated for a while. I do think if that were to be the case, I think this year is making it pretty evident Garland would be the guy. I mean, yeah. yeah <laughs> right. So good. Yeah. He was, he's, uh, I mean, he's a bit turnover prone, but mm-hmm. man, his handle kind of allows him to get anywhere on the floor like he gets into the teeth of the defense he's shooting 53 percent from two-point range this season has that buttery floater in his bag and i think he's done a really good job using the threat of that floater to disguise the lobs to allen uh like that that has been a really potent pick and roll combo you know i'm not saying it's as good uh as as the trey young clint capella pick and roll combo but it's it's fairly similar in the way yeah. that it works and the way that Garland like Trey young is able to weaponize his sort of in between scoring to open up, you know, pocket passes and lobs to the rolling big. And, you know, to your point about Allen and his offensive growth, man, his post game has kind of come out of nowhere. It was basically non-existent up until this season, but now he's like pretty consistently, you know, making moves in the post and like some dribble moves, like drop steps, demonstrating some really nice footwork and able to take advantage when teams have smaller players on him. And I think that's been a really important thing to making that too big look work in the front court, because obviously one of the advantages of that is one of him or Mobley is going to have a smaller guy on them. And so it's like, if they can take advantage of that in the post, which Mobley has demonstrated an ability to do now, Allen's demonstrating that ability as well. Uh, Jared Allen's a, at 1.08 points per possession in the post. That's 84th percentile. That's really, really strong. And it's on a fairly low volume still, but I think that is meaningful. I think people tend to misunderstand like the benefits and drawbacks of the too big thing. I hear a lot of people kind of mentioning like how it can be a vulnerability at the defensive end, but the vast majority of the time, if you look at how those two big units perform it's a lot more damaging at the offensive end than it is on defense usually you're seeing the benefits of that look at the defensive end and that's Mm -hmm. very much true for the Cavs like the benefit for them 
And you're talking about Mobley being able to switch out on the perimeter. We're seeing Jared Allen switch out on the perimeter as well. You don't have to play drop. You know, you can show high. And it's like, you can do that without compromising your back line. If you get, if you, if you switch out and you get beat, you're still going to have one of Evan Mobley or Jared Allen behind you. Who's going to be able to clean that stuff up. Like that is the benefit. And then, you know, it's also obviously for rebounding. Like you can have one of those guys stepping out and contesting shots and still have a seven footer near the rim to rebound the ball. Um, so the fact that they're kind of making it work on offense while getting all the benefits on defense is, is what's really important here. And it's not perfect. Like the spacing does get cramped on offense. And to that effect, like it would sure help if Isaac Okoro could shoot the ball even a little bit. Yeah. But they're making it work. And I think the defense is legit. And I think, you know, I do wonder, like, do, do we see a starting lineup change at any point in time? Like, can, I mean, they're, they're starting Lowry Markinen along with those two guys yeah. that are working right now. And they need Markinen's shooting. But I, I wonder if that is uh, the, the answer long term. Obviously, you know, if Sexton was healthy, I think it'd be a lot easier. You could go like Garland, Sexton, Okoro, and the two bigs. And yeah, I think, I think that's perfect. Although Sexton was all, like also could not hit a three yeah. when he was healthy. But, um, but, he's, he's, but a yeah, better, he's a better offensive player than what he showed this season before getting hurt. He is. Yes, I agree. Um, and I think, you know, I, I mentioned Garland's two point scoring, but Sexton was kind of the same thing. Like he was shooting 24% from three, but like 55% from two. And I think we've seen obviously him be like a really solid three point shooter in the past. So if anything, I'm more encouraged by like the two point scoring from him than worried about the three point shooting. Yeah. And um, you know, I think you just hope that like that injury isn't going to sap his explosiveness because his ability to to get to the rim. And like, I think I, they had found the right balance with those two guys with Garland playing on the ball and Sexton playing yeah. off of it. That you like if Garland, if Sexton still has all that explosiveness when he, he gets back, I think that can be a really potent offensive backcourt. But yeah, man, just just a team that I'm really enjoying watching and obviously a young team on the come up that is going to be a factor in this Eastern conference, I think for a long time with uh, a very special rookie big man who look, he's, he's going to be a problem. He's already a problem. You mentioned them being legit and you know, you meant like top three defense. They have the number two net rating in the East behind only Chicago uh, top six, seven overall, I think, but you want to talk about legit. So I know the Bulls were bang up, banged up when they crushed them the other night. But even before that game, when they beat the Bulls, they played close games against the Bucks and Jazz, crushed the Wizards, the Heat, and the Mavs, played the Suns and Nets tight. That's all just within the last eight or nine games, like three weeks maybe, not even. The, 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 yeah, they're legit, man. They've got uh, the win profile to show it. They've got like the, the eye test. They pass it. They compete against great teams. They beat the teams for the most part that they should. Like they're just good, I think. And and we're at you know what twenty six games in about a third of the way through the season, just under that. We're at the point of the season where if a team is that solid, um, with that kind of strength of schedule and these kind of underlying numbers, it would actually be pretty surprising if they're not just good the rest of the way. I would pick them to finish top six if you're asking me right now. Where they're they're in the last playoffs proper spot right now. They're in six. Yeah, I, I also. They're obviously not going to end up with three all-stars, but I think all three of those guys have pretty strong all-star cases to me right now. Maybe maybe Mobley a little bit less so, but yeah. 
Garland and Allen to me have played like all stars this season. I think at yeah. least one of those guys needs to get in. I think one probably of them, Garland. I think Garland. Yeah, I think one of them will. I think if they continue to play the way they're playing and and they're right in the mix, because you know they're, they're not going to get voted starters. They'd have to get coaches pick. But I think if they're in the mix, I think the coaches will reward one of them. All right, let's t- let's take the break there, and we'll come back and we'll talk about a feature that you just wrote about Penny Hardaway. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out The Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, Cash. Massive feature that you just dropped today called Who Run It? The Rise and the Reign of Penny Hardaway in Memphis. And it's sort of all about Penny Hardaway's upbringing in Memphis, his cultural connection to that city, his embrace of that community and that community's embrace of him, how that city kind of defines him and just how beloved he is in Memphis. And obviously he's now coaching the Memphis Tigers, which he has turned into a recruiting powerhouse. And I just thought it was a, it was a really touching read actually. And I think you kind of think about these, these reverential figures in NBA history, these cultural icons like Penny is and it's very easy for them to disappear, I guess, from, or maybe that's not the right way to put it. Maybe like they remain in the, in the public consciousness or the public imagination, but it is very much as what they were and what they right. represented when they were players in the league. And I thought that this was like a really interesting and emotional look into the post-playing career that almost feels like more meaningful than mm-hmm you know, than, than what Penny did as an NBA player. So I just want to talk to you about that. And like, A, you know, what was the genesis of this idea? What made you want to write about it? B, you know, what did you learn? And what was the process of reporting this story like for you? Because you, you do it in a first person where you're talking about your journey and your trip to to Memphis and everything that happened there. So tell me about that piece. Yeah. So first of all, thank you for the kind words. Uh, you know, it means a lot coming from the writer that you are, Wolf on, as everyone who's read your writing knows. Um, so first I want to uh, shout out Guy Spurrier, who's our uh, features editor, our supervisor, who actually came up with it. So I originally had the house that Penny built. He ended up coming up with the Who Run It title, which is the title of a 3-6 Mafia song. 3-6 Mafia was a Memphis uh, hip-hop group. Anyway, in terms of the genesis of the story, so for any of our, I mean, if we've got any Magic fans listening, they'll know for sure. But if you're an average NBA fan, you might remember in uh, last off season, in the summer, the Magic had this coaching search and there were a lot of reports linking Penny Hardaway to that coaching search because of, you know, a lot of the things I talk about in the story He's kind of rise up the coaching ranks, what he's done at Memphis, the fact that he obviously is a Magic legend. And what at the time, Penny pulled publicly pulled himself out of the running for that job put a video out saying, look, like, it, I, I, you know, eventually this dream run I'm on, I want it to culminate in, in the dream of coaching in the NBA, but it's not the time right now. I have unfinished business in Memphis at the University of Memphis. So 
I remember seeing that and at the time thinking like, well, that's actually like really interesting. It's not like, you know, the magic went in another direction and Penny's like, okay, it's just not my time. And like this guy pulled himself out of the running to continue to basically toil away in Memphis coaching at his alma mater. And so I already, I already thought it was interesting and then just started like Googling some stuff. You know, I knew Penny was a Memphis guy and he was from Memphis, went to Memphis, but I didn't really understand. Obviously, we don't live there. We're not from there. Like the the connection, the true, distinctive, unique connection this guy had to his hometown, which I started understanding as I was like, Googling stuff that day. And so then I started thinking like, oh man, there might be like a story to be told here about this guy who was, you know, obviously the knee injury zapped him of what should have been a Hall of Fame career. But for like a good half decade in the mid 90s, was as popular a player as anyone not named Jordan, was as good of a player almost as anyone not like and you have this guy that was on top of the world that made tens of millions in endorsements on top of 120 million in career salary, you know, wealthy beyond need, who was a star among stars. And now when he's got this chance to like, you know, potentially be an NBA coaching star, he actually says, you know what? Nah, I'm good. I'm still good in my hometown with unfinished business at my alma mater. And just I, I just thought that whole thing was interesting and wanted to dive into that story. Basically, wanted to like, what is this unfinished business? What continues to drive a man like Hardaway, like I said, who tens of millions in endorsements, 120 million salary, star among stars, to continue to want to toil away in Memphis at his alma mater instead of coming to the NBA? I had all these questions. And so then it ended up that uh, there was a potential connection to Penny that we had that, you know, could have potentially facilitated an actual sit down with them. Anyway, it got to the point where this connection, uh, you know, made some things happen. And by the time October rolled around, I had a tentatively scheduled planned sit down, like multiple hour sit down with Penny Hardaway planned for the week of Memphis Madness. So for anyone that's not too familiar with college basketball, Memphis Madness, you know, it's I guess Memphis's version of like a Midnight Madness event where it's like part like meet the team for the city. It's part uh, meet the team, like almost kind of like a homecoming thing, part skills contest, part scrimmage, part concert. I can't remember who, uh, uh, Moneybag Yo, if anyone knows that, was the guy at the concert this year. He's got that song, Waukesha. Anyway, that's what Memphis Madness is. So I was told to come for the week of Memphis Madness. Cause like, yo, if you're going to sit down with Penny, like, and you're doing this thing about his connection to Memphis, come the week of Memphis Madness, you'll truly get a sense of it, which I thought was great. So I left, like we had Canadian Thanksgiving on the Sunday night uh, with my family. The actual day is Monday. I left then Monday at like 6 a.m., fly out to Memphis, get there and what's there, Columbus Day. Penny's doing this like golf club mixer, um, like meet and greet thing. Now I will say, uh, you know, I won't get into like too many of the specifics of not ended up getting them, but I will say that like the, the person who connected us with Penny did have a really unfortunate health incident in the family that they had to leave town for. So the person had, who had made this all happen for me wasn't going to be on the ground. What I did not anticipate was when I went up to Penny and talked to him, he had no idea that I was coming to town. <laughs> so as I mentioned in the story, clearly wires were crossed. Um, not an ideal thing. Uh, if you're a writer, reporter, like whatever media person that have just traveled to cover someone with the, with the understanding that you're going to get time with them and then find out they don't even know you're coming. So I went from like, I was supposed to get two hours with Penny uh, sit down, like talk about everything, life. This was originally going to be like basically like a much larger profile of Penny Hardaway with the, the Memphis connection stuff at the core of it. But it was going to be a much lo longer, deeper profile. Like to give you an idea of how deep the profile was supposed to be, I had started reaching out. Chances I would have got them obviously were slim to none. But like I had started reaching out to like contacts for Chris Rock because I wanted to talk to him about the little Penny 
at back in the 90s. Like it was going to be a full scale profile of Penny and kind of like the life story. Then I realized, oh crap, I'm not getting Penny. I've come all this way. I'm not going to get Penny. What the hell am I going to do? And what I what I noticed those few days in Memphis, and honestly, even that first day when I was already dealing with the disappointment of him not knowing I was supposed to be there, was that he, he had this connection with people that, quite frankly, I had never seen before with like an athlete, celebrity, star, around regular folk, people in his hometown. Like it, even among a guy that's home and you know a hometown hero, this connection just seemed different. Like the way he was interacting with people he didn't know at the golf course. The way some of his old friends were and, and you know, they were talking to me. They knew I was from the score and you had old friends of his. Like just the way everyone was talking about Penny and the way it was like, I felt like I was almost at like a political rally before someone was about to run for president, like before a big election the next day. You know what I mean? Like the fervor generated by his presence in Memphis seemed different to me than what is usual for a guy in his hometown, even for a star. And so I was like, okay, that's interesting. Maybe there's something to be told there. And then it was just like, as I, as I went around Memphis, I put in the story, it was like, I could not, I could not take an Uber without, you know, if we got onto talking about like, Oh, what are you doing in town? Whatever. And if I let them know what I was doing, I could not get through that Uber ride without it seemed like every one of my drivers having their own Penny Hardaway story. You know, there was this one older gentleman, I think his name is Alan, who used to be a Memphis state. That's what the university of Memphis used to be called season seat holder and was one when Penny was there. And this guy was such an intense, like Memphis Tigers fan that him and his dad used to go on little local, like uh, road trips where when Memphis secured like a top recruit that was from the local area or anywhere within driving distance, they would go watch that guy in high school. They'd be like, Oh, let's go check out this guy. That's going to be playing for the Tigers next season. And so he had this great story where like they went to Treadwell high in the late eighties to check out, I think it was Elliot Perry, who was going to, who was the big senior that was going to be coming to Memphis. And, you know, has a story about, well, this, this skinny ninth grader named Anthony Hardaway stole the show. Um, you know, I talked to a guy that used to be a ball boy for the university of Memphis way back in the early nineties. Uh, and who at the time was like eight, nine, 10 years old. And as a ball boy would talk a ton of trash to opponents because he was a, a Penny Hardaway super fan about how they're not going to stop Penny. And so that guy jokes that like he used to joke with his friends as a kid that he was the real life inspiration for a little Penny, the iconic Chris Rock uh, voiced alter ego that Nike came up with. So there's all these little things in it. And then obviously the, the, the point of the story as you read through it is just that like, you know, if you want to think about the question of unfinished business, just like this Penny is Memphis through and through like to his core in a way stars usually aren't still. And, you know, Memphis is like a city, the 28th most populous place in the state, 633,000 people. But it's not like a big city. It's it's kind of like more like a midtown. City. You know what I mean? It's it's a small place, um, a lot of Southern hospitality. It's not the kind of place you would expect. Again, a guy that's risen to the heights, Penny Hardaway has risen to come back to, you know, not for a year or two, but to just toil away. Like the story of why he even got into coaching and took over his old middle school team to help a, a sick friend with terminal cancer. Like that story is obviously touching in its own right, but like that's how the guy got into coaching. And then he spent multiple years coaching in middle school. And then he went to high school and coached multiple years there and won state championships. And then obviously now he's at Memphis. Like just everything about his story and did it all in Memphis, by the way. Like it's, uh, yeah, it. I ended up enjoying putting this story together about how everyone in Memphis has a Penny Hardaway story, why they love him so much, how connected to the city he is, how deep those roots run. You know, I, I didn't talk to anyone specifically about this, but I do mention in the story for anyone that forgot, like Penny Hardaway got sh like shot 
When, yeah, I uh, definitely had forgot. Like, I, I don't know if I'd forgotten. I don't know if I ever knew yeah, that. He, like, he was robbed at gunpoint um, during his freshman year in Memphis, and the assailants fired back at him as they were going away, and he ended up with a bullet in his foot. They, was, they like, questioned whether he would ever play again. And as I mentioned in the story, you know, like, given the fact that he was projected to be this next big superstar, like, and and then the fact that that happened to him in this, you know, un- unfortunately not great area of Memphis where he was originally from, like, I think there are a lot of people that would, you know, take that experience and quite frankly, a near death experience dealing with their, their basketball mortality at the very least and think, you know, maybe, maybe the comforts and the pitfalls of home are not good for me right now. You know, I think there are a lot of people that would have thought, let me get away from here. And maybe he would have transferred, gone somewhere else, but he didn't like he stayed in Memphis. And one of his friends um, who actually played football for Memphis at the time uh, was uh, roommates with Isaac Bruce, who went on to a Hall of Fame NFL career. Anyway, he tells the story of like he like Penny was never going even with that incident. Um, Penny was never going anywhere because even back then, as like a teenager, he wanted people to know he was from Memphis and he was from Binghampton, Binghamton in Memphis. I used to call it Binghamton, and everyone kept correcting me there and saying it's Binghampton. Uh, so I guess it's Binghampton. But anyway, yeah, like he wanted people to know he's from Memphis, he's from Binghampton, he wasn't going anywhere. Um, he wanted to wear it on his sleeve. There, there are a lot of reasons why I think, if I can say so myself, that I think the story ended up still being one worth telling, despite the fact I didn't get the interview I went there for. So I hope people check it out. It is a long read, but it's also we're entering the weekend. So if you've got 10, 15 minutes to read about this, what I think is a really special connection between, you know, um, for our generation, one of like the coolest players of our childhood and his hometown decades later. Yeah, I will say, and I, I know I was telling you this off air, but I, I don't think that the piece really suffer that much for not having Penny's, you know, direct insights in it. Because I do think it was as much as anything uh, about how that city feels about him. And I liked the through line of everybody sort of having a Penny story and just everybody that you came across wanting to tell that story and wanting to talk about him. Uh, I, I thought it was really artfully done and... I think it's a great story and one that uh, would be worth reading for for anybody, you know, whether you were a Penny fan or not. Just uh, if if you want a story that's going to really situate you in a place and give you an idea of the way that these legends are built, I suppose. I, I just uh, I think it's a great read, and I'm sure it'll be up on Cash's Twitter page at some point later today. I would definitely strongly recommend it. So. Cash, thank you for writing it. Thank you for sharing your insights on on your storytelling journey. I'm going to kick it over to you before we sign off here to give us a fan shout out. Okay, we got an international one. I'm excited about this one. Marcelo Menezes in Recife, Brazil. Marcelo also wanted to point out when he he reached out that Recife is the city who has the biggest carnival in the world. So we'll let him pump his hometown. Uh, He said he started listening, he thinks from the beginning, uh, before the the Raptors 2019 playoff run at least Um, and he says he vividly remembers our uh, interview with Mina Masood who of course played Aladdin in the live action remake a couple years ago and what happened the 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 reason uh, Marcello ended up reaching out to us is someone had tweeted I guess someone that he follows had tweeted uh, one of those lottery simulators that ended up with the Raptors getting the number one or number two pick and drafting Paolo Banquero uh, who's half Italian uh, and who actually wants to represent the Italian national team, even though he's an American that 
will should be able to play on Team USA at some point in his career. But anyway, so Marcello saw that and then ended up replying to that tweet by CCing me and saying uh, this result would create a Paizan session on Pound the Rock, to which I say, yes, it would. Absolutely correct. Uh, and then so I reached out to Marcello being like, hey, if you're a fan, you know, I saw the Brazil flag in his uh, in his profile, let us know. And and so he did. So Marcello, we appreciate you. Thank you so much for supporting the show for as long as you have. And the usual call out, whether you're international, whether you're here in North America, whatever. If, if you're a fan, we appreciate you and we want to give you a shout out. So let us know. Hit us up on Twitter at Joseph Cacharo, at Joey W, on Instagram at Joe underscore 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 cash. Email joe.wolfon at thescore.com, joseph.cacharo at thescore.com. Let us know how long you've been a fan, what you like or don't like about the show, and where you're listening from. And we will get you a shout out on a future episode. Indeed. Thank you, Marcello. Thank you, as always, to every single one of our listeners for sticking with us. It is a pleasure to churn out multiple episodes for you every week now. And uh, with that, we're going to end this one, but we will be back in no time at all on Tuesday with, I'm quite sure, another batch of exciting NBA news. For now, for Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon. Enjoy your weekend. Pound the Rock. Pound the Rock.